For our scripture reading this evening, we again turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And again, we're going to begin reading with chapter 12, verse 31. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Now what follows is our text. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. And that is the end of our text, but we read yet the last verse. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. We read that far in God's Word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle here in his letter to the Corinthians even in this chapter, which really is the theme of the entire book of 1 Corinthians, he continues to praise the excellency of love, what he calls the more excellent way of love, and which I have entitled the most excellent way of love. He does that to the congregation of Corinth because they had minimized love and placed other, even great spiritual gifts over and above and even to the exclusion of love, which led to the problems of schism and divisions in the body of Christ there at Corinth. 
And for these same reasons, the Holy Spirit brings this text also to us, because these same dangers threaten us in our own proud and selfish ways. The Apostle began by calling it a more excellent way, and then he went on to praise the value of love. And he showed that love is the more excellent way because it is more valuable than the possession and use of spiritual gifts, even spiritual gifts like knowledge and speaking in tongues and even faith itself. Because without love, the use and possession of those gifts are worthless. Next, he praised the activity of love. He identified how love actually behaves. Not simply so that we might know the difference between love and what pretends to be love, not only to show us what love actually is, and that love is not merely an emotion, but it acts, but the Apostle did so in order to show us that where love reigns and where love is found, it is a most excellent place to be. It is a place where there is peace, and where there is harmony, where there is unity, and where there is joy. And now, in the passage that we consider tonight, the Apostle praises yet another quality of love that makes it the most excellent way to live. And that is its abiding character. What the Apostle means when he says that love never faileth. By those words, the Apostle means much as the same that Solomon taught in the Song of Solomon when he said that love is as strong as death and its jealousy is as cruel, meaning fierce or strong, as the grave. That's chapter 8, verse 6. What Solomon taught there is that love has an abiding character, a strength that even death and the grave cannot overcome. The Apostle in our text teaches the abiding character of love, especially by contrasting it once again with spiritual gifts. In this case, three. Prophecy, the speaking of tongues, and the spiritual gift of knowledge. The Apostle here is not making an absolute comparison as if, again, one possesses one or the other or must place the one in the category of worthless and the category of the other one only as valuable. But he is contrasting them. And in spite of the fact that spiritual gifts are valuable and good, that 
love nevertheless is yet greater because it alone abides. It has an abiding character and strength that prophecy and tongue speaking and knowledge do not possess. It never fails. Whereas the spiritual gifts that we are given to use and possess do fail. Consider with me tonight, then, again, the most excellent way of love, and in particular now, its abiding character. We consider in the first place the astounding truth that is set forth here when the Apostle speaks of the abiding character of love. He does that, as I said, when he asserts that love never fails. What he means is that once one loves and has an object of that love, that it never stops. It never ceases to be. It is never done away with. It never disappears. Now having said that, it's important for us to understand precisely, again, what the Apostle means, however. The Apostle is not saying that love is always perfect. That love is never imperfect. That love never gives way to feelings of hatred or envy or being unkind. No, love itself is kind Love itself envies not. Love itself is never proud. But that does not mean that the one who possesses that love is never proud and never envious. No, certainly, that's not what the Apostle is teaching. The fact is, we all know to our shame, sometimes to our consternation, and certainly to the hurt of others, We fail to love them when we ought. And we fail to love them because our love gives way to feelings of anger and hatred and impatience and envy and jealousy and all sorts of evils. Even though having said that, one can certainly say that in a sense, love though never fails that God in His great mercy and His grace will return us back to the way of love. That God will call us to repentance. And if He has given us faith, we will recognize the great evil that that is, repent of our sin, which repentance includes not only sorrow of heart, but again loving those whom we are called to love. Having said that also, one ought to remember the other qualities of love, especially the value of love and its activity when such things happen. Our attitude when love appears to be overcome by hatred and envy expresses itself in unkindness. Then when we do that, what we ought to remember is the first part of the Apostles' teaching. First of all, how valuable love is. That it is more valuable 
than anything else, including knowledge and faith. And secondly, remember exactly how love behaves. Often the problem when we succumb to the evils that we commit against one another, we justify that. And we even explain away the evils, so much so that if we were asked to explain what love is, you wouldn't recognize it. And then we need to be brought back to the Holy Scriptures. Maybe you've had that. Or maybe you've known someone where that has happened. So entrenched is their sin against a brother or sister or against a spouse that if you quote a passage like this and say, this is what love is. Here you claim to love your spouse. Here you claim to love your brother or sister in the church. And when we examine your behavior in the light of this passage, we see there's no correlation whatsoever. And the Spirit pricks them. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes all one hears is excuses. This is why I get to act in a way that is puffed up. This is why I get the excuse to be unkind. This is why I get to act unseemly. But that's not true. And such belies the lack of repentance. Another thing we ought to understand about what the Apostle is saying is he is not simply speaking of the reality that love is strong such that it's able to overcome all sorts of troubles and all sorts of obstacles and all sorts of hindrances in our way. That is true. That is indeed an amazing quality of love. That there's something about love that it has the power to sweep away all sorts of things that stand in its way. We often speak about the amazing power of love to carry away distance or to carry away time or the fact that love is blind, that love is able to overlook all sorts of things perhaps that it's in our nature to respond negatively to. That's a reality of love that is a quality we adore, that makes love beautiful, that makes love work. It's one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul, for example, in Ephesians, speaks about love as sort of the lubricant that is in the joints of the body of Jesus Christ. So that the joints, when they move and they exercise and go about their labor, don't grate away and grind away so there's pain and trouble. That certainly is true of love. And certainly it's true of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. Don't want to minimize that. If we examine the love of God for us, consider how that love has overcome every barrier, every hindrance, everything that stands in the way of God loving us and of us loving God. Just think of it. There's God, the great 
Creator, the Infinite One, the One who lives in majesty in heaven, and here we are. Creatures, sinful creatures, stands in the way. It's a barrier, an obstacle. There is all of our guilt, all of our unrighteousness, all of our hatred of God Himself standing in the way. There is the justice of God that must be satisfied. There is His only begotten Son who must come down from heaven. He must die. He must suffer the hatred and the ridicule of men. He must enter the grave. Think of the great barrier that death in the grave is to the love of God. And such is the nature of God's love that it sweeps it away. It hops over the obstacles. It blasts through the walls. Love has that strength and its power. has that with God toward us and it has it in the church. But that's not really what the Apostle is talking about here. It's not his point. What he's teaching is the abiding character that it's permanent, that it's lasting, that it doesn't go away. And that now in three senses, three particular ways. Number one, love abides and continues during our lifetime. And we might say during all the lifetime of the church. When we have the love that the Apostle is speaking of here, then we will have that love and we will have that love for that duration, for as long as we live and for long as the church shall live. In the second place, the Apostle is talking about the fact that this love continues through death. It continues through the death of the members and continues through the end of the world. It abides beyond it. That's the meaning of when later he says, when that which is perfect shall come. What's he referring to there? He's talking about the perfection of the individual member of the body upon death that they shall arrive at in glory and the perfection that the entire church shall arrive at in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying now, not only does love last as long as you shall live, but when you die, it continues. It goes on. Thirdly, the Apostle is teaching that nothing essentially changes about love or its character. It remains always essentially the same. It's never fundamentally altered. The love that I have for you now is the same love that I will have for you ten years from now. And the love that you have for one another is the same love that you will have on your deathbed. Not only that, but the same love, the same exact love, the same character of that love, the same nature of that love, the same way that love behaves will remain in perfection. That's what he's referring to when he talks about the fact that love never fails. The 
truth, even what I call the astounding truth that the Apostle sets forth, is that this is not true of the spiritual gifts that God gives us, even those that the Apostle mentions here. The astounding truth is partly the abiding character of love that he sets forth here. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. But again, his point is, is how vastly superior and great, how much more excellent is the way of love, and that because the spiritual gifts do fail. They do fail. In fact, it's important here for us to understand even more clearly what the Apostle means when you consider that what the Apostle says here is true only about this particular love and no other earthly love. The love, for example, of a man for his wife, that fails. That fails. It fails in all three senses. That love fails in that that man and that woman will not love each other in the same way or in the same sense in perfection as they do now. Even the love of parents for children or children for parents. Think of how even the love of a child for parents changes and in a sense fails when they marry. They leave father and mother They find, as it were, an even greater love, a superior love. Only love that endures during this life and goes through death is what the Apostle is talking about here. And let's remember very clearly what he's talking about. He's talking about, specifically, the love of the members of the church for one another. This is one reason why it's so important to marry in the Lord. Because if you marry in the Lord, that love for one's spouse is a love not only for them as a spouse, an earthly spouse, but a love for them as a fellow member of the church. And that love will never fail. This is a great motive to rear your children in the fear of the Lord. Because otherwise, your love for them will fail. If you raise them in the fear of the Lord, and God by His grace saves and redeems them and gives them faith, then your love for them is a love for them not simply as children and blood, but a love for them as God's children, the members of the church. And that love never fails. The Apostle says, prophecies will fail, tongues will cease, and knowledge that we have will vanish away. He says, these all shall be done away. Verse 
10. The apostle by prophecies is referring to teaching. He's referring to whenever the people of God teach one another. He does not refer here, strictly speaking, to the office of the ministry, whereby there is an official proclamation we call prophecy or teaching from the pulpit. He's referring here to any instance where the child of God, the children of God, a mother or a father or a teacher in the school is instructing others in the Word of God. It refers to a mother teaching her children their catechism lesson. It refers to a father sitting down with his son and instructing him in the way that he must live. It refers to an individual in the congregation who is willing to reach out and give instruction and help in time of need from the Word of God. It's what the Apostle goes on later in the book to refer to as speaking unto men for edification or exhortation or comfort. And the Apostle is saying that there comes a time when that fails. When it's done away with, so fundamentally does it change. Tongues refer to the special gift of the Holy Spirit of an individual to speak a foreign language that they previously did not know so that someone else who knows that foreign language understands what they are saying and was a gift that was used especially in the course of prophecy. The Apostle speaks about this and about this gift. The Apostle says about speaking in tongues that it will fail. And in fact, the speaking of tongues failed already right after the apostolic age. As soon as the Scriptures of the New Testament were written, then there was no need for miracles and the speaking of tongues to confirm and expound that word. And so already it failed. This explains also why after mentioning prophecy, tongue-speaking, and knowledge, the apostle drops speaking in tongues. Later on, as our text proceeds, the apostle ignores speaking in tongues. And that because that would fail very soon. But then there's knowledge. Knowledge. Certainly, we might say to ourselves, well, knowledge cannot fail, can it? The apostle by knowledge, of course, is referring to an intellectual understanding and assent to the truth of the gospel. Talking about knowledge of God triune, His Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Knowledge of the atonement. Knowledge of justification. Knowledge of election and predestination. Knowledge of history. The biblical history. The apostle will speak of that knowledge throughout the book, especially in chapter 8. Speaks about the knowledge of Christian liberty. Talks about the knowledge of the Lord's Supper. Talks about knowledge of doctrine. And again, the astounding truth is the Apostle says that that knowledge shall cease. It shall end. It shall vanish away. The Apostle 
is now, we must understand, not simply referring to what happened in Corinth. That's one reason he chose the gifts that he did. One that would vanish pretty quickly, but two others that continue to this day. Prophecy and knowledge. What the Holy Spirit is doing there is teaching that what is being said here doesn't apply simply to the Corinthians. Was not merely a danger that they were threatened by, but a word that we need to hear and we need to understand about the greatness of love in comparison to the use and possession of these spiritual gifts. In the same vein, we should see that the Apostle also isn't limiting his comparison to that. The idea of the Spirit here is that the Apostle picks what he calls the best gifts. That in those days, these were the best gifts. That there are indeed many, many gifts of the Spirit, but they are basically worthless unless you have, for example, prophecy and knowledge. And in the days of the Apostle, the speaking in tongues. And the point is that if he can make his case with those, if one can see the reality that prophecy and tongue-speaking and even knowledge disappears, that they fail, then that applies to all the rest. So we can do that. There are many, many spiritual gifts that are given here in Trinity PRC. Special spiritual gifts given to individuals, to individual mothers and fathers, individual persons, to children, to elderly. Everybody has spiritual gifts. They possess them, are called to use them. Given gifts with regard to music, with regard to understanding, with regard to articulating the truth, with regard to living a faithful life with regard to simply loving their family. And the word of the Apostle is, they all will fail. Love alone never fails. Now what's the explanation for that? The underlying explanation, I call it. Well, keep in mind as we proceed that the Apostle here is really explaining two things. He's explaining on the first hand, why it is that love abides. What's the explanation for that? Why is it that love continues? Why is it that love continues the same throughout life and continues after death and into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? And in the second place, why is it that these gifts fail? Why is it that prophecy fails? Why is it that knowledge vanishes away? And we must understand the reason is not that there's something bad about them. That cannot be. They are, after all, spiritual gifts. They are actually impartation of the Spirit. They are part of the possession of the Spirit. They are the gifts of the Spirit. So there cannot be anything bad about them as such. Nor is the reason they fail because they are worthless. They have no value. We saw last week they have tremendous use. They have tremendous value. The church needs people to prophesy. The home needs men of knowledge. Children need to be taught the Word of God by knowledgeable parents. The church fails without a prophet. No, there's 
other things that the Apostle points us to in explanation for this. The reason he says they fail is in verse 9, because we know in part and prophesy in part. Again, notice how the Apostle drops speaking about tongues. He simply focuses on those two and makes his case with regard to those two. If you were to ask, why would tongue speaking fail? I just gave you a reason why that failed. It was no longer required because it was a part of the spread of the gospel in the age when the scriptures were still being completed. But why now knowledge and prophecy? Because we know in part and we prophesy in part. What he means is that all of our knowledge and all therefore of our teaching of that knowledge is in part. That is, it is imperfect. It is incomplete. Oh, it's accurate. It's true. What we know and what we learn and what we teach is the truth. But it's incomplete. Think about that all by itself. About the time we think we know everything, right? We've gone through X amount of years of catechism. And we hear the preaching of the Gospel twice every Sunday. We've been through the Heidelberg Catechism how many times? And we begin to think to ourselves, well, I, I, I know all there is to know. Or we have that proud notion that you often find, but it's a notion of ignorance, that all I need to know is my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's all I really need to know. What's important to know is simply that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save me from my sins, and that's the extent of what I want preached, and that's the extent of what I need to know. And it's foolishness. It's utter foolishness. God reveals many, many things in His Word, and He reveals them for a reason. Because we need to know them. But the Apostle says we know in part. And we prophesy in part. Just think about that. Think about what he's saying. The Apostle is looking at himself. He's looking at his fellow laborer, Peter. And the tremendous knowledge Paul, after all, was taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter saw things. John saw things that we'll never see in this life. Think of what they knew, what they learned from Jesus. They only knew in part. They only prophesied in part. Paul looks ahead and he sees a Martin Luther and he sees a John Calvin. He sees the reformers that wrote our creeds. He sees great and mighty men. He sees the books that are written, the sermons they preached. He sees the creeds. He even looks and sees the scriptures soon to be completed with the writing of the book of Revelation and says, it's only in part. Not one of those men knew it all. Not one of those men could prophesy it all. It's only in part. Now just think about us, you and me. Think about what there is to learn and to know. 
And if you live to the ripe old age of 100 years old with a mind intact and the ability to read and you're still studying and still learning, perhaps still instructing your great-grandchildren, it's only in part. He even uses two examples to illustrate what he's talking about. One concerns knowledge and the other concerns prophecy. That explains those examples. The one concerns knowledge is the one about looking in a mirror. We see through a glass darkly. What he's talking about is a mirror there. And a mirror in those days wasn't glass. It was polished metal, usually brass. That's what a mirror was. And it was used just like we use mirrors today to look at our face. But when you looked in that mirror, when you looked in that piece of polished steel, no matter how fine it was polished, there was distortion. There was dimness. There was confusion, as it were. What you're looking at, in other words, is not the reality. What you're looking at is an image. You're seeing an image of what you are, not looking directly at yourself. You're seeing or knowing in part. That's his point. Something for us to remember about knowledge. One reason our knowledge is only in part is not simply the fact that we have a limit to our knowledge. That we are creatures. And there's no way we could learn the infinite truth of the Word of God. The infinite depths of His love and His mercy. The infinite wisdom of His plan. That's not the only limitation that makes us looking through a glass darkly. But it's the fact that we're talking about spiritual realities and the medium through which we learn them. We learn them through physical means. We read the Bible using physical eyes. We hear the Word of God through physical ears. Our knowledge has to be placed in a physical brain. And that is why we only know in part. Then the, the next example he used concerns prophecy. Prophecy talks about a child. Talks about speaking like a child. What he's talking about there is teaching. Teaching. Prophecy. And what he's saying is, Take the best teacher. Take the greatest teacher in all of the history of the church. You pick yours, I'll pick mine. Some of those teachers are astounding. It is absolutely astounding the gift of teaching that God gave to some men to be able to read, to file it in their memory, and then recall it in such a way that others could understand it. That it could come down to their level. Think of a John Calvin. Amazing gifts. And God says he was just a child. It's not to the level of maturity that you may consider complete. It is only in part. Like the knowledge of a child. Like the teaching of a child. And for this reason... The Apostle goes on to say, they shall be done away. Notice following the logic. It's only in part. Now we often think this way. We, we, we think exactly differently. We think this, okay, so I know in part and I prophesy in part. So when that which is perfect has come, then those things shall be perfect. They're no longer going to be in part. They're going to be perfect. 
No, the Apostle says, they're actually going to be done away. They're done away. There will be no need for anyone to teach and to preach. There will be no need for knowledge. No need for that. So it's done away. Why is that? Well, the underlying explanation of that is because you will no longer know and you no longer learn the way you do now. When that which is perfect is come, those will be done away because you will learn directly from the source itself. There will be only one teacher. There will be only one source of knowledge, one way to receive that knowledge. So it's done away. But don't forget, the underlying explanation also has to do with why love remains, why it's permanent, why it continues. And the answer of that is because it alone is the end or the goal of God for His people. The end or the goal. What we forget and what we need to be reminded of is that God has an end or a goal for us. He has a purpose for us. A telos. End or goal. Now, we may say there's many of them. That God has many ends or goals. But chief among them is the end or the goal that we love one another. Our love for God is certainly one of those ends or one of those goals. That God has done what He's done, has shared what He's shared, has given us spiritual gifts, has given us to a spiritual gifts like prophecy and teaching to the end or goal that we love Him. God doesn't send us teachers and God doesn't give us knowledge for its own sake so that we may love ourselves and lift ourselves up and walk around saying, look what I know and listen to how wise I am. But God does that for a reason, an end or a goal. Now what is that end or goal? You may summarize it simply as this. It is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But that's not the only end or goal that God has for us. There is the end or the goal that we love one another perfectly. Now if you ask why that is, you could go back to God Himself and you could answer the question simply because God is love. It's true that God is all His perfections, but love has a special place because it summarizes them all. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is mighty. God is just. God is righteous. He's full of compassion, full of pity. He's a God who knows, who's understand. He's the God of truth. But God is love. He is that. And so should it surprise us that the great goal or end of all things for you and for me and for the church is that we love God and we love one another. That's why love never fails and even knowledge and even prophecy do. You see, knowledge and prophecy fail 
because they serve the end. Love is the end or the goal. Knowledge and prophecy are a means to the end. They are given to us to achieve that, to arrive at that. And as we all know, when the end is achieved, when the goal is arrived at, then all the means you use to get there are no longer necessary. Are no longer necessary. They're taken down. Think, for example, of them building that big skyscraper in New York after the Twin Towers fell down. And if you watch them putting up that building, you could hardly see it because of all the scaffolding and all the other cranes and everything that they had to put up that giant skyscraper. There was even a certain beauty to it. But it wasn't the building. It just served to put up the building. It just served to arrive at the goal. And there was a day in which it all was taken down. All the cranes, all the winches, all the hoists, all the scaffolding, down it came. Because it was all about the building. And that's the underlying explanation for this astounding truth of the Apostle. You see, when the church is perfected in love, when we love without sin, when we love one another, even as we are loved, then there's no need for knowledge and no need for prophecy calling us and instructing us in that. And so that love never fails, never goes away. It's only perfected. It comes to its full perfection, its full glory, the full end which God has for us. Now that implies a calling, and one that I call an obvious calling. There is no exact calling, of course, in the text, but I say it's obvious. There's no need for the Apostle even to put it there, for the Holy Spirit to speak. It should be obvious to us. That calling is not now that we say to ourselves, well, I guess if that's the case with knowledge, and if I guess that's the case with prophecy, that we just do away them now. What need in there, what need is there then for me to, to learn, to understand? It should just be enough that I say I'm saved and I know myself to be saved. Why spend my time? That would be utter foolishness. That would be as foolish as the builders of that big Freedom Tower in New York City hacking down the scaffolding before the building was put up. The calling is that we make sure we do not emphasize knowledge and prophecy to the exclusion of love or even place them over and above love. That is the calling. Isn't that obvious by now? If love now is the more excellent way, because it's the only way, the others are gifts and possessions. If now love, as the Apostle set forth, is the more excellent way, because if the spiritual gifts are exercised without love, they are worthless and vain to everyone, including the person himself, 
And if now love behaves itself, take note that the way love behaves itself is how we would expect and want for ourselves. Do unto others as you would do unto them. That's the summary of the calling of love. And if now love is the only one that remains, and the other which we have now only in part are done away, why in the world? Why in the world would you take a position like this, that the only preaching we need to hear is about doctrine? And by doctrine now is, let's say, predestination or justification or any such thing. How in the world could one bristle at preaching that calls us to love our neighbor and perhaps disparagingly call that law preaching? The calling is to love your neighbor. The calling is to actually live that way and to be that way now. Not saying now, let's wait till that time of perfection. Let's, let's wait until we die and then we'll love one another. Oh no, love abides. We love our brother and sister in the church now. And why? Because that's God's will for us. That's the main goal and purpose of all of this. It's the reason He gives us prophets. It's the reason He gives us teachers. It's the reason He's given us the knowledge that He has given us as Protestant Reformed churches. Why? So that we might love one another. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We express sorrow for our sin. We have come to hate our lack of love one for another. We pray, teach us, teach us evermore, prophesy to us, give us knowledge and understanding to the end that we might love one another as we are called to love. And give us patience to await that day when that which we know in part is done away, when we shall know even as also we are known, and we shall see thee face to face and find in our heart and behavior only perfect love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.